Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief at the New Books Network, and I'm here to tell you that we work very hard on getting good audio, but it doesn't always work out as we had planned. So just to warn you, the audio in the interview you are about to listen to is really not very good. It's not up to our standard. Nonetheless, I thought I would post it because there may be some of you who want to listen to it, even though it sounds like, well, it just doesn't sound very good. So with our apologies, here's the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're very happy to have Tim Snyder on the show. Tim's new book, The Red Prince, The Secret Lives of a Habsburg Archduke, has just appeared from Basic Books in New York. I've known Tim for a long time, and I know him to be a terrific historian, and what is more, a great writer. I really enjoyed reading The Red Prince. I think that Tim is a master stylist. Um, He writes uh, in a way that I think few academic historians can write, and I'm certainly envious of his style. So I enjoyed reading the book, and I, of course, enjoyed talking to him. I hope that you, in turn, enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Tim. Hey, Marshall. How are you today? Excellent. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. We're actually enjoying beautiful weather here in Iowa. You know, we had this um, biblical flood that uh, almost washed us out, but the people of Iowa um, stepped up and everything seems to be fine. You're in New Haven right now, is that right? Yeah, I'm in New Haven. How how is New Haven? I haven't been there forever. Uh, Absolutely lovely. Um, The nice part of summer, the only drawback to the nice part of summer is that you know it just is going to get more hot and humid as the weeks go on. But right now it's perfect. Yeah, no, we we get the we get the same thing, but it's really wonderful right here. I think that I think that uh, the, the weather is something that needs to be appreciated, especially in places like the Midwest and the, the Northeast. Um, anyway, our our uh, guest today, if you haven't guessed, um, is Tim Snyder, and we're going to be talking about his book, The Red Prince: The Secret Lives of a Habsburg Archduke. And uh, just to show my cards, I love the book, and. Uh, I can't wait to talk to Tim about it, but um, what I'd like to do first is to ask um, Professor Snyder to talk a little bit about uh, himself. Tell us where you grew up and how you became interested in history and that sort of thing, if you would. Well, I I grew up in in southwestern Ohio, and um, I think I became interested in history before I realized that that was what was going on. Um, on the one hand, I, I came from a family uh, of, of, of Quakers where the Quaker ladies were always keeping track of, of genealogy and things like that, mm-hmm. which, of course, I laughed at as a little boy, but nevertheless, I think it, it, it sank in. And the idea that you could record things as you move from place to place, mm-hmm. you know, so from, from England to Ireland to, to Pennsylvania to North Carolina to Ohio and actually have some kind of a record, that seemed straightforward to me, and that's a kind of historian's way of thinking. Mm-hmm. But also then, as, as, as a kid, I loved to read biography, which I think is a kind of, I, I, I mean, my career maybe shows a little, but I think is a kind of first way of getting into hard historical subjects. Mm-hmm. At the time, I didn't think about it that way. I just liked to read about you know Daniel Boone or Kit Carson mm-hmm. um, or John Adams and mm-hmm. uh, Napoleon. And I would read them one after the other after the other. I would just consume them. Mm-hmm. So, so that was the very beginning. But, you know, how I got interested in history professionally was by a series of accidents. I always loved it. I always thought it was a reliable way of dealing with um, of dealing with the present. That is to say, I always thought that history was a chance to understand something. And if you understood something in the past, then you have some chance of, uh, of having a crack at understanding the present. Because mm-hmm. the present's always happening, you know, so complexly that we can't really understand it mm-hmm. in real time. Uh, but I came to it by, by a kind of accident. I, I thought that what I was going to be when I grew up was a diplomat. And mm-hmm. what I really wanted to do was to, um, <laughs> to put it into the Cold War. I thought I was going to be an arms negotiator. Oh. I was studying in the late 80s. Oh, yeah. and, uh, uh-huh. and I studied uh, intellectual history sort of on the side. And, and the way I came to 
European history or East European history was that I saw in Eastern Europe, as a lot of people did, of course, um, uh, urged on by people like Tim Gardnash or, or Adam Miknik or Václav Havel, I, I came to see Eastern Europe as a place where ideas, which I was interested in, were, were coming into a kind of fruitful confrontation with power. That is, where people who had ideas were coming to power and people who cared about history were coming into power. Uh-huh. And so at that time, I still wanted to be a diplomat. Um, and resolve the Cold War, but that sort of took care of itself while I was studying. And in the meantime, um, I, I, I got I got a fellowship to go off to Oxford. I'd been studying um, at Brown, uh-huh. and very fortuitously at Brown for a year, there was a gentleman called um, Tom Simons, who was a career diplomat, uh, uh-huh. and uh, but also I think still the person who wrote the fastest PhD in the history of the Harvard History Department. <laughs> also, somebody might correct me there um, on, uh, on on a Habsburg topic, and he was about to serve in Poland and served in Poland before, and taught an absolutely wonderful lecture course on uh-huh. post war East European history. Uh-huh. And so with that under my belt, um, I went off to England to study. Uh, and in, in England, I could travel around and learn languages on the continent, which I thought was preparing me to be a diplomat. Uh-huh. Uh, I thought I was doing the history doctorate as a kind of really proper through a preparation for current diplomacy. Yeah. <laughs> but somewhere along the way, my friends, and also quite funnily, my supervisor, who was Timothy Gartnash, pointed out to me that I was probably a better writer than I was a diplomat. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone put that very nicely. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and Tim put it especially graciously on a very nice walk around um, a frozen lake in the middle of winter. Yeah. Um, but I got, I got the idea, um, and at that point, I, I, I stuck with the history. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting. At a certain point in my career, I realized that I was um, uh, a better historian than I was a basketball player. That was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was kind yeah. of a different moment. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just sort of learned it wasn't going to happen for me. But anyway, that's you certainly are a good writer. I, I, I will say that. So uh, you have to thank Professor Gart Nash for for his um, for his counsel on that occasion. Um, and so then you went off to graduate school. You were grad school in England. Is that right? Yeah, at Oxford. At Oxford, right. And so then you begin to write these books. How did you come to write The Red Prince? Uh, well, it, it, it comes out of a much uh, larger preoccupation um, with nationality. Nationality is, of course, the major preoccupation of historians who write about Eastern Europe. Yeah. Um, and at the moment, I think we're at a kind of by the moment, I mean like the last 15 years, or maybe since 1983, um, when when Gellner and Anderson um, published their book, and and uh, and and and, and uh, Imagine Communities was, was published, and mm-hmm. um, also that collection um, edited by uh, uh, by Ranger and Hobsbawm was published on the Invention of Perdition. Anyway, for a while, we've had this problem that we know nationality is very important. It's the pet issue of East European history. There are good reasons for that. At the same time, everyone wants to be critical of it, and you know, we're at a moment where we would like for nationalism to matter less than it has in the past. Um, we would maybe like for it to matter less than it does. I think we may be a bit deluded about how much it matters. And so, like, from, from the very beginning, I've been trying to find a way of writing about nationalism, which uh, accepted its importance, but which also permitted a kind of critical or analytical stance. And so every single thing that I've done has been about nationalism in one way or another. Um, the, the first book was a biography of a forgotten Polish revolutionary who was also a sociologist, um, called, he was called Kazimierz Kalas-Kraus. And he, while he was engaged in revolutionary activity to try to bring about a nation state uh, to bring about socialism. He was also writing about how um, modernization was going to bring about modern nationalism, and that that is, and that Marxists should take that for granted. Mm-hmm. This was a necessary step and an inevitable step, and not necessarily a regressive one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 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 then while I was doing that, forgive me if this is too long-winded and, and break in if you have to. But while I was doing that, I got preoccupied with foreign relations again. I had a kind of regression of my own back to thinking about <laughs> diplomacy, and, and and I got preoccupied with um. This is now the early 90s with Poland's relations with its eastern neighbors, which uh-huh. seemed to be troubled by all kinds of historical or maybe even mythical conflicts. Uh-huh. And I wanted to write a short book about the diplomacy of history, uh-huh. that is, how diplomats deal with um, popular perceptions of the past. Uh-huh. And in the first half of the 90s, there were real issues between Poland and Ukraine and Poland and Lithuania about various events in the 20th century. Uh-huh. And I wanted to get to the bottom of that. But I realized that to get to the bottom of that, and this may be the real moment when I became a historian, more than the conversion moment when Tim told me I wasn't very diplomatic, um, <laughs> was 
when I realized that to actually write about that, I had to figure out what the history was. That is, that the, the categories of diplomacy and myth weren't enough, and that the, the scholar actually had to know the history to be able to figure out where the myth came from. Mm-hmm. Not just to critique it, but to figure out where it came from. And that led me to write my second book, which is called The Reconstruction of Nations, mm-hmm. which is an attempt to show how modern nations arose, multiple modern nations arose, on, the, on a large territory of Eastern Europe, on the old Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which mm-hmm. is now Ukraine, Lithuania, Belarus, and Poland. And it ends up with those diplomatic problems. But I try to show how ideas of nationality, which still mattered in, say, 1989 or 1999, had a lot to do with early modern issues and the way that the early modern political order broke down. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then from from there there was another little book which was also about nationality. I got I, I got to thinking about um, voluntarism. You know, we we all on the one hand we all think that big historical forces matter a lot, and I think we pretty much all agree that when it comes to nationalism, the state matters a great deal. Mm-hmm. But then why does the state do what it does, and 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 who makes those decisions, and um, what about national policies to create nations? Who actually is behind them? Can mm-hmm. they backfire? And I, I kind of stumbled across. As I was working on reconstruction of nations, I stumbled across this little policy in uh, interwar Eastern Poland, which was called the Volinia Experiment, mm-hmm. and it was a completely forgotten little policy of toleration of the Ukrainian minority, which was actually Ukrainian majority in that territory. Mm-hmm. And what I figured out was that the key to this policy of toleration was the attempt to draw Ukrainians across the border in the Soviet Union towards Europe, towards the West, towards Poland, to kind of build the Ukrainian nation, which was going to be pro-European mm-hmm. rather than pro-Soviet. Mm-hmm. And I stumbled across lots of very fascinating materials in Polish and Soviet archives um, about this experiment and was able to write that out as a book called Sketches from a Secret War, which was about how one state might build the nation of another state. Um, mm-hmm. And in that, I tried to to, to, to show how um, particular policies have these consequences that may be unintended, because this policy did end up supporting the Ukrainian nation, mm-hmm. um, although the Ukrainian nation never, you know, nations don't say thanks to other nations. That's <laughs> a general rule. They sometimes say sorry, but they never say thanks. Um, uh, but, but the whole time, I'm, I'm really now trying to answer your question, Marshall. Um, the whole time I was preoccupied by this um, this tension between the large factors that build the nation, you know, the state, economic development, um, mass education, popular literacy, linguistic boundaries, and then the very small actors who chant, who understand those, those larger factors and uh-huh. who channel them, manipulate them, take advantage of them. Uh-huh. And so for 15 years now, I've had this project um, uh, called Brotherlands, which is a, a serial biography of families where people choose different national identities and then go on to become important in rival national movements and rival national states. Uh-huh. I've been playing around with this for a long time as a way to kind of get to the core of this issue of voluntarism. How uh-huh. much does choice matter? Who can make choices mm-hmm. um, it, amidst these larger historical forces? And Brotherlands led me to Wilhelm, mm-hmm. um, because Wilhelm von Habsburg, the person who's called the Red Prince in this book, mm-hmm. he came from a family where there were multiple nationalities. Yeah. His father wanted to be Polish. His older brothers were Polish. Uh, one of them became Austrian or, in fact, German. So he was an example. He was going to be a case for me. I came to write the Red Prince when I realized that this case, this one chapter, it was just too good to contain. Mm-hmm. Um, when I figured out that Wilhelm had been a serious force for Ukrainian nationalism in 1918, mm-hmm. uh, when I figured out that he had this fantastic scandal in Paris yeah. involving cross-dressing, sex with sailors, mm-hmm. absence of the Paris Ritz, um, mm-hmm. a, a rich adventurous, and a Habsburg restoration, mm-hmm. um, when I figured out that he had ended up um, as a spy for French military intelligence in post-war Vienna, mm-hmm. arrested by the Soviets. When I, when I figured out, essentially, that he was a very colorful character, his life had put him in contact with a lot of the major trends of the first half of the 20th century, mm-hmm. I thought, okay, this guy should have his own book. Yeah. So that's how, I came to write, that's how I came to decide to write that book. Yeah, so that was a little authorial volunteerism of your own. And I guess I say uh, that because I, I, I admire the fact that you recognize that a good story had emerged from your research, and you decided to use it, if I can be so bold, as a hook to tell a larger story. Because I think this is something that a lot of historians, and I would even include myself, uh, 
don't do. I, re- I remember actually a very fascinating instance in which I was asked to review a book, a manuscript actually for a press, and it was about, I won't say what it's about, but it, it was about a particular group of scholars, very important scholars in the United States. And in a footnote, this guy who had written the book detailed all of the affairs that they had had with one another's wives and husbands. In mm-hmm. a footnote. And I was just like, this is your story right here. You tell that story, and then you use it to tell the larger story. But, of course, that's not the way it turned out. But I think you made a very wise decision in actually choosing to make uh, Wilhelm the kind of spine of the book itself, because he is a, a tr- a really quite an, um, you know, an amazing character. Also, I have to say this, and I'm, I'm sorry to go on, but uh, you talk at length about another character, well, many characters like Wilhelm, but one that I knew about, and I thought I was the only person on earth that knew about this guy, and that is um, Trebesh Lincoln. Um, how did you, did, did, is he a widely known figure? Well, um, I, I, I'm sorry to derail this here, but explain who Trebesh Lincoln was, first of all. Okay, well, well Travis Lincoln was um, was born um, a Jew in Budapest in the, in, in the third quarter of the 19th century. Uh, he, he fled Budapest apparently, uh, having been caught committing some kind of robbery. He went to England. He he fell in with um, with with Protestants. He converted to Christianity. Uh, went off to Canada as a missionary. Yeah, he was a missionary. That's right. Yeah, yeah um, came back to England, married a fairly wealthy German woman, lived on the dowry for for quite a while. Um, then managed to get himself a post as the private secretary for a Quaker philanthropist um, known as uh, B. Seabone Roundtree, and <laughs> in that in that capacity. Um, because this guy was a philanthropist, he traveled around Europe and he used his German and he learned had learned English, of course, and he made lots of contacts on the continent. This is now the first ten years of the 20th century. Yeah. And then, when the First World War rolled around, uh, Trebitz Lincoln decided to sell his services as a spy. He tried the British and he tried the Germans simultaneously. Eventually, the Germans picked him up. I don't think he did anything useful for them. He had to flee the British. He ended up being arrested on Broadway. Yeah. Um, escaped from American jail a couple of times. Was eventually expatriated to Britain. Wrote some, um, wrote some books about his experiences. Yeah, he, 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 he wrote for the New York Tabloid. <laughs> <laughs> how I was arrested, how I was a spy, yeah. uh-huh. that sort of thing. Right. Um, and oh, and. Uh, yeah, oh, and along the way, he managed to become an, <laughs> a British MP. Yeah, he was right. He was he was in yeah. Parliament for a while. Yes, that's yeah. Right. He was he was he was in Parliament. So he, he lost that, and he lost his his British citizenship as well. And he fled to Germany at the end of the First World War, um, where he became part of a group of right wing German nationalists who actually overthrew the government. And they called the Cap Putsch. Cap Putsch. Um, yeah, and so he was briefly this Hungarian Jew who converted to Christianity was briefly the press spokesman for a basically proto-fascist German yeah, government. Right, yeah, no. Yeah, and so then he hooked up with Wilhelm later on um, when the two of them were were were, were loosely involved in schemes to invade Bolshevik Russia right, and overturn the new Soviet order there. Now I want to say that I know all this because there's a biography of Trebitz Lincoln by Bernard Wasserstein. Mm-hmm. At Chicago, which is excellent. Oh, really? Okay, good. I yeah. I had heard about him from a graduate student of mine, and and I just became fascinated with him. And so I had the graduate student tell me everything about this fellow because he was just a, you know, you can't really live a life like that anymore. I think uh, it's it would be impossible because he changed identity so many times. I mean, we should tell our listeners that, uh, not to kind of spoil the end of the story, but he ends up as a it's a Buddhist monk in China. Is that right? He, he ends up yes recruiting Canadians um, and Americans and Europeans to China yeah. uh, to his Buddhist colony, where of course they have to relinquish their material, material possessions. Doesn't show no exactly. To this him. Yeah, this yeah. guy. This guy is uh, this guy is almost as good as Wilhelm, but not quite. So let's go to Wilhelm himself. I think they have kind of parallel lives in a way, but let's get to Wilhelm himself. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about his upbringing and how he came to decide that he, and this struck me as odd, that he was Ukrainian somehow. Yeah, uh, the key to the upbringing, I think, is is the broad historical moment, which is the the late 19th century in the Habsburg domains. So this is a time, on the one hand, where the Habsburgs are, of course, hoping to continue forever. I mean, that that is their mission. 
Um, that's essentially their genetic code. They are going to continue forever, if not as rulers of the world, not as rulers of all of Europe, as rulers of part of Europe. And they're going to remember those, those, those broader ambitions for some future day. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, they are being outflanked by nationalists everywhere. There's a new kind of policy in, in uh, politics in Europe, which I think of as national monarchism. I mean, mm-hmm. it usually gets tracked with liberalism, but I think it's really, in, in effect, it's part of the history of monarchism. Mm-hmm. Because the national unifications which happen in Italy and in Germany, those are the important ones, um, are actually carried out in the end and end up being channeled by and controlled by monarchists, and these countries end up being ruled by monarchs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so the Habsburgs on their north in Germany and on their on their west in Italy uh, are being hemmed in. They can't expand in those directions after Italian and German unification. And moreover, they lose wars um, along the way, which makes them feel humiliated, and which makes them look like a second-class power, which mm-hmm. they really are becoming. Mm-hmm. So it's at this moment when Wilhelm's father has a very clever, imaginative thought, and that is that if the Habsburgs are going to survive, they're going to rule Europe or part of it, they're going to have to somehow master nationalism themselves. Mm-hmm. Because if the nations keep unifying, that's just going to take pieces away from the empire until there's nothing left. Mm-hmm. So what he proposes is that the Habsburg royal family should instead take on nationality, or at least some members of them should take on nationality, and they should get behind and thereby get on top of the national unifications which are sure to come. <laughs> so this um, is sort of a new business plan for the Habsburg yeah, enterprise. That's yeah, exactly what it is. You know, the Marshall, they, 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 that's, how, that, that's how they've been. You know, it's yeah. easy to laugh at the Habsburgs because they're, you know, they no longer rule and and um, and they they were really they really were quite comic in many ways. But you know, they had survived the, the Crusades. They survived sure. the Reformation. They'd mastered the Counter Reformation. They got through the Renaissance. You know, they'd done okay nationalism up to that point. So this is a family which has been ruling for 600 years, yeah. and so they, they had an idea that you could roll with history's punches. Yeah. And, you know, mass nationalism was just one more thing. Yeah. Why not? At that right. point, you know, in 1895, when Wilhelm was born, nationalism was just the latest thing. Yeah. And the Habsburgs had no reason to think that they couldn't outlive it. Right. Anyway, so, so his father, Stefan's plan was that they should figure out which national unifications were still coming and get on top of those by getting behind them. And and those were, as he saw it, the Yugoslav and uh-huh. the Polish. Right, start you know, And of course, in some sense, he's right, because those unifications <laughs> yeah. do happen. Right. Um, and he has the grandiose idea that he himself is going to become Polish, uh-huh. and he's going to raise his children to be Polish. Uh-huh. Now, this grandiose idea is backed with the, the, the geopolitical logic, which I just tried to give you, but it's also backed with some financial logic. Um, in 1895, he inherited, Stefan, that is, Wilhelm's father, yeah. a huge estate in Galicia, mm-hmm. um, which is territory which had originally been in Poland. Mm-hmm. A huge estate, um, you know, larger than Liechtenstein, um, uh, about a, a fifth of the side of Rhode, side of Rhode Island, mm-hmm. with, a, with a very profitable brewery mm-hmm. um, called Chiviet, which still exists and is still very profitable. Um, so he had this idea that he would kind of create a kind of mini Polish kingdom there. Mm-hmm. Now, in the meantime, though, the family was living on the Adriatic. Um, they were living in, on an Istrian island. And, and Stefan, in anticipating this grand Polish plan, created a kind of Garden of Eden on one of the islands. Now It's now called Voshing. He built a palace on this island on the Adriatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was essentially inaccessible, surrounded by pine forests. Mm-hmm. Um, a, couple, a couple hundred acres of, of very pretty gardens, which are still there, actually. Um, and uh, created, this, created this kind of this, this oasis where the children had sports and they had languages um, and they had wine twice a day by noon mm-hmm. and they had religious instruction and they had instruction in the court ritual to make the children, there were six of them, Wilhelm was the youngest, perfect rulers of coming, coming, national, coming national kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and originally the idea was that the oldest son would be a Pole and the next might be a Balkan prince. Mm-hmm. Um, the second son had the name Cyril and Methodius. Yes. Which, if you know anything about the history yes, of I Eastern do. Europe, no, you know, clearly means, you know, something happening in Europe, in that part of the world with, with the Balkans. Yeah. But eventually they all moved to, they all moved to Galicia. Now, Galicia was at the far end of the Habsburg Empire. They'd gone from the south to the north, from warm to cold. And Bill, this is where Wilhelm starts to think about Ukraine. He starts to think about Ukraine for a couple of reasons. The first is that, um, he, he's now in contact with Ukraine because Galicia, is a kind of Polish-Ukrainian-Jewish, lots of other people there too, but for the most part, Polish-Ukrainian-Jewish territory. Mm-hmm. And his father is thinking of it as a Polish territory in a kind of old-fashioned nationalist way. Mm-hmm. It used to belong to Poland. But 
Wilhelm is younger, and he's thinking of things in the way that people are starting to think about them in the late 19th century, early 20th century, more uh, ethnographically or demographically. The mm-hmm. people here, some of them anyway, are Ukrainians, and he played with Ukrainians, and he started to learn some of the languages. Mm-hmm. Also, he was reading Polish literature, and in Polish literature, Ukrainians feature especially in Shinkiewicz with fire and sword. Yeah. And he started to identify with the Ukrainians who were supposed to be the rebellious villains in these mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. And he identified with them even more in around 1910 to 1913 when his older sisters were courted by Polish aristocrats. Mm-hmm. You know, which is itself a very annoying thing. I realize it happens to very few people. But um, his sisters were courted by these Polish aristocrats, one Czartoryski, one Radziwill, and they were essentially taken away from him. And he loved his sisters. But also, more practically speaking, this meant that his father was building a Polish royal family mm-hmm. uh, with his father at the top. But now his brothers-in-law were clearly above Wilhelm. Mm-hmm. And Wilhelm was the sixth child. And, of course, by the age of 11, 12, 13, um, 14, 15, 16, he knew how to think dynastically. Mm-hmm. So he could see that if there was going to be a Polish royal family, if the scheme was going to work out, he was going to be already way down in the list of succession. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the very practical reason, the almost cynical reason why he went for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Because there weren't any Ukrainian archdukes. Right. There were some, there were archdukes identified with Poland, also with Hungary and with other nations, but there was no Ukrainian archduke. So insofar as there was a practical reason, I mean, what I'm trying to do is to make the imaginative and the, and, and what seemed a little bit crazy seem practical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But from Wilhelm's point of view in 1912, 1913, when he took on Ukrainian identity as a teenager, there was a practical reason. And it did turn out that the Habsburgs needed the Ukrainian Archduke. This was the time of the Balkan Wars. The Balkan Wars threatened war with Russia. Any war between the Habsburgs and Russia was going to have a long Ukrainian front. Mm-hmm. There were almost no Ukrainian officers in the Habsburg army. Mm-hmm. Wilhelm, and, Wilhelm goes to the military academy um, in Vienna, and he takes instruction in Ukrainian. He's being prepared to be Ukrainian military officer. Mm-hmm. So there's an element of fantasy in it. There's, there's an element of geopolitics in it. There's an element of a young man's rebellion against his father's plans. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, when he rebels against his father, he does essentially the same thing as his father. He just chooses a different nation. Yeah, exactly. And he rebels against the empire by choosing a nation, but in fact, the empire really needs people to choose nations at that point. So that rebellion, too, gets absorbed and, and channeled and sublimated. How does um, his father react to his decision to become Ukrainian? At first, there's no problem. Um, and I find this symptomatic of, of, the, of, of the old order, of the imperial way of thinking. During the First World War, when it's relevant, the father and son seem to get along. During the First World War, it seems actually quite possible that Stefan, the father, is going to become king of Poland. Um, He's the leading candidate of the Germans, uh, Austria's allies during the First World War. He's not the leading candidate of the Austrians, but they have to, they have to, of, 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 of Franz Josef, um, and Mm -hmm. then of Karl, but they have to consider the possibility. So during the First World War, People are talking about Stefan von Habsburg becoming king of Poland. Mm-hmm. This is all forgotten to us now because, of course, Poland becomes a republic and therefore all the monarchist possibilities get rubbed out. Yeah. But during the war itself, this was, this was mooted and was seen by many to be pretty likely. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Wilhelm during the First World War was a public Ukrainian. Um, he commanded Ukrainian forces for the Austrian army. Uh, and he was known for a policy of Ukrainization, which, by the way, is a word that they used at the time. It's mm-hmm. the earliest use of that word I've seen. Mm-hmm. They, they wanted to make the Ukraine. The Austrians wanted to make the Ukrainian peasants, Ukrainian-speaking peasants, be Ukrainians, mm-hmm. ultimately loyal to a Habsburg Empire, but nevertheless Ukrainians. And Wilhelm was doing this all across the southern steppe of Ukraine, of occupied Ukraine in 1918. Mm-hmm. Anyway, during this time, father and son were in touch. There were only scraps of these letters left, but it seems that father and son were in touch and that they were able in a friendly way to decide what the border between Poland and Ukraine was going to be. Mm-hmm. So in 1917-1918, when they could still imagine that they were going to win the war, or at least the war was going to end with some kind of favorable settlement in the east, the father and the son were communicating in a very cordial way about how Galicia would be divided between mm-hmm. the two of them, how the Ukrainian crown then would be divided from the Polish. Mm-hmm. What's characteristic is that when they lose the war, and a world of nation states comes about, then all of a sudden father and son have a problem mm-hmm. because nationality is going to equal statehood, which means that you have to choose a side. There's only yeah. there's only be one loyalty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And after that, uh, this is at a point at which, if I'm not incorrect, um, Wilhelm has taken the Ukrainian name in addition to his own. Is he Vasily Vishovani yet? 
He's he's been Vasily Sibani as of 1917. Okay. Um, yeah. 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 He takes the name Vasily in 1914 when he or 1915 when he meets his men in the trenches, uh-huh. um, and it's the closest thing to, to Wilhelm he can come right, up with. Exactly, and then yeah. in right. 1917, he's greeting a famous Ukrainian churchman at uh-huh. a train station, and he's wearing a Ukrainian shirt underneath uh-huh. his Austrian uniform, uh-huh. and the Ukrainian shirt, an embroidered shirt, is called Vasily. And, yeah. and the, the crowd murmurs, Vashibani, Vashibani, he's a Ukrainian, yeah. and therefore he takes that as his second see, name. Yeah, that's interesting. So then, after the war is concluded, he breaks with Stefan, his father, correct? Yeah, they break for all kinds of reasons. There's a war going on in Poland over these precise, these eastern territories, which Stefan and Wilhelm agreed about. Now that now Poles and Ukrainians are, are fighting for them, and um, Wilhelm is seen, and quite properly, as supporting the Ukrainians. Um, so, and Stefan, meanwhile, is trying to keep these hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, ter- of acres of territory, which are now in Poland. Yeah. So his, his own son is fighting against the state, which is nationalizing his property. Mm-hmm. So he has very basic existential reasons for having to separate himself from the son. Mm-hmm. And how do they feel about the, um, the revolution in Russia, and particularly the incursion of the Soviets into Poland? Are that, what are their feelings about those things? Well, at first, the revolution in Russia... Is, is a good thing. I mean, before the end of the First World War, because the revolution from Russia and Russia knocks Russia out of the war, it makes it mm-hmm. look like Germany and the Habsburgs are going to win the war in the East. Mm-hmm. In fact, they do win the war in the East, yeah. and it makes it seem like there could be a Polish kingdom and a Ukrainian kingdom underneath um, German or underneath Habsburg rule. Wilhelm himself at that time is a social revolutionary. That's why he was called the Red Prince. Because in Ukraine, he allowed the fundamental social part of the revolution to hold. He allowed the peasants to keep their land. Mm -hmm. Um, He was just going to be a kind of uh, red monarch above them. Mm -hmm. He was going to be the czar which allowed them to keep their land. He was Mm -hmm. going to humiliate the Polish landholders who were between him and his people. That was sort of a dream. Mm -hmm. However, um, after the First World War, during the Polish Bolshevik War, when it looks like communism is going to spread to Europe, then Wilhelm and his father are in very different positions. Um, the father remains Polish, and he has to proclaim his Polish loyalty to keep his Polish property, as do the other two sons, mm-hmm. Wilhelm's brothers. And Wilhelm's brothers enlist in the Polish army, and they defend Poland um, ultimately successfully mm-hmm. against the invasion by the Red Army. Wilhelm, meanwhile, wants to free Ukraine. And for there to be a free Ukraine, the only way that can come about after the First World War is for somehow both Poland and the Soviet Union to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so what he wants is for Poland and the Soviets to meet on the battlefield and to be some kind of mutual carnage, Mm -hmm. and then for a Ukrainian army to sweep in and somehow establish a Ukrainian state. Mm -hmm. So he's in the bizarre position of hoping that his father and his brothers, in effect, will be defeated by the Red Army, and then the Red Army will somehow be defeated by Germany or something like that. Mm -hmm. So at that point... He has to wish sort of the worst upon his father and brothers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One can easily see why that would cause a certain division. So uh, what in fact happens is that the Bolsheviks are defeated, as you say, and I, I, you have a line in your book, which I quite liked, and you, you say that's really the end of World War One, and I think that's probably right. Uh, the Bolsheviks are defeated, and uh, they go sulking back to Moscow, wherever they go. Uh, Poland is, re- is proclaimed a republic, if I'm not incorrect. And then um, uh, what happens to Wilhelm at that point? Well, that, that's this is the point where, where Wilhelm has his, his encounter with with Trevich Lincoln and yeah, his other adventurers, yeah, yeah. Um, and he thinks for he tries to raise money. In fact, does raise a lot of money for a couple of years to try to lead another invasion of Bolshevik Russia or the Soviet Union. And he, he does seem to gather at some point about 40,000 soldiers for training in Bavaria, and he gets a good deal of money. He's very good at raising money. Um, he's quite charming. And you know, at that time, the Habsburg name still meant something. So he would campaign around Europe to raise money. Um, he would even, he even went to American Jews and promised them that there would be mm-hmm. um, you, he, he would make Zion for them in Ukraine <laughs> right. um, if they would give him dollars, uh, which is quite an incongruous yeah. sort of way to raise arms yeah. um, at that particular moment in history, especially since he was working with Bavarian nationalists. Yes, right. But but that all that all comes to nothing, um, and everybody betrays everyone else, and so he flees to Madrid, which is a very sensible thing to do. Um, because Madrid is where the Habsburgs went. Spain was actually ruled by a Habsburg of a certain kind. Mm-hmm. Alfonso XIII, who was king, was Wilhelm's first cousin. He was Wilhelm's father, Stefan's sister's son. 
And so um, Alfonso was a Habsburg on his mother's side, and he gave shelter to various clean Habsburgs in the early 1920s, including Wilhelm. Mm-hmm. So Wilhelm went to Madrid. Um, he had lots of fun, did a lot of traveling um, and dancing and drinking, and tried his hand business uh, with very little success. He just didn't have the kind of stable personality, um, and he couldn't really do math, which hurts <laughs> in business. Um, but he, he was extremely charming. He was very good at bringing people together, and people liked him, but he wasn't able to make very much money. Mm-hmm. So he ended up... Um, in the in in the mid twenties, moving from from Madrid to Paris, where he kind of stabilized his decadent lifestyle, mm-hmm. um, living essentially in Paris on the Riviera around Paris, um, going out going out to dinner with starlets, um, showing himself you know in his physical beauty on the beach, um, mm-hmm. having lots of affairs, more of them true than rumored, I'm afraid, mm-hmm. um, with both men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, he tended to, the the ones with women tend to be more public.
Yeah, that's, I, I, it's amazing that he can get there and then nobody has heard about this before. <laughs> yeah, no, that's quite astounding. So if we could just take one step back to talk about something that I found very interesting before we continue with Wilhelm, and that is um, right after the war when he fell in with the people that you call the revisionists, and I was always taught to call them revanchists or something, um, but one thing I didn't realize is that uh, this notion that the post-World War I settlement was unacceptable to many parties uh, began very quickly after the war. And there were a lot of very serious-minded people who believed that um, that uh, the settlement could not stand. Could you talk a little bit about that? I, I, Marshall, I think that's a wonderful question because it, it, it's in a way that realizing that opened, opened up a whole way, different way of looking at the 20th century to me. I, I think we... Um, by which I mean most American historians, uh, historians of, of Western Europe and of Europe too, have, despite all of our self-awareness, we have a kind of Republican model of yeah, history. Yeah, no, I think that's the, absolutely right. Yeah, no, I think I, I, yeah. That, that goes right to my question. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. where the natural, where the First World War ended the way that it had to end and the way that it should have ended, and that these nation states that we created for all of their problems nevertheless were legitimate because they were republics and, right. and you know, the republics won the war. Right. Um, you know, leaving aside, of course, that Britain wasn't a republic. But France, the United States, they won the war, they set the terms of the peace, and this all was in a way the way it should be. Yeah. Now, we managed to keep that in mind and also keep in mind all of our critical thoughts about nationalism in the nation state. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and there's a real tension there, and that tension is one which we kind of, we delude ourselves about. Yeah, the people who didn't delude themselves about it were, of course, the nationalists, the revisionists, or the revanchists, which yeah. is the same thing. The people yeah. who said, look, if you want national self-determination, then Austria should be with Germany, yeah, the right. state land should be in Germany, yeah. or they said Hungary should have all the Hungarians, or they, yeah. should have, or they said, in Wilhelm's case, there are 40, 50 million Ukrainians, they have no state at all. Yeah. And so if you're going to be principled about it, then, then you should be consistent and not make these compromises yeah. for geopolitical reasons. Yeah. And um, so, you know, and then revanchism and revisionism, this idea that you should change borders, um, that's associated with the far right. And, of course, later on, it's associated with Hitler, which is one more reason why we don't like to think about it. Yeah. But, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That movement, that, that, that thought that the settlement was, the settlements were illegitimate begins right at the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, really, and it really runs quickly. Yeah. All yeah. the way through, yeah. it's instant. It runs all the way through the 1920s and 1930s, and it's a kind of force. Um, the sense that, 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 that it is basically illegitimate is held on the right, you know, with the Germans and, 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 and the Austrians, on the left by the Bolsheviks yeah. in a different way, right. but also by a lot of people in the middle who just think that it was essentially unfair. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And, you know, it's, my eyes were open to this actually by a book by a fellow named Mark Mazauer. I don't know if you know this book. It's called Dark Continent. Yeah, but it was a it was a it was a it was a 20th century European history like one I had never read. It was as if I, I didn't know and I didn't understand the 20th century. And then I read his book and I'm like, you know, he's right about that. But you know, it actually casts all of fascism and national socialism. What what happens in the 30s in a very different light because many right thinking people were of the opinion in 1918, 1919 that the settlement that had been created just could not stand, that it was impossible. And we, we have erased that, I think, largely as a result of this Republican bias that we have. I mean, Wilson, as we go on, and as I learn more, looks worse and worse. <laughs> you know, he, was, he was also a racist. I don't know if you knew that about Wilson, but uh, yeah, no, he, uh, he doesn't really come off very well. But it's, I, I think that the book, I think your book particularly, does a nice job of showing how these forces... Um, the revisionist forces were beginning to organize themselves and achieve a certain popularity almost as 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 soon as the war was over. They realized that the peace that was going to be imposed upon them was just not going to be acceptable and was going to it was going to you know that there was going to be some as my people would say come to Jesus moment where uh you know there was going to be a serious discussion, and it turned out worse than they ever could have expected. I think so. Yeah, no, I think that, that your book does a very, very good job of that. Um, let's uh, return to Wilhelm then. So now he has uh, escaped scandal in Paris and is back in uh, the new <laughs> this place called Austria <laughs> that that, uh, that no one can really imagine. And is he in Vienna then? Yeah, he's in Vienna, or even in, in suburbs of Vienna, or with his sister, or he's skiing um, near near Salzburg. Yeah, yeah. You have some wonderful pictures, and you have one wonderful picture in the book of him uh, looking incredibly charming, uh, 
uh, on the ski slopes uh, with a, a very beautiful young man. <laughs> I, yeah. He had good taste. Uh, so uh, at this at, shortly, the, I don't know if it's shortly thereafter, but uh, he, he, how does he react to the rise of the Nazis? Yeah, let me take a step back from that okay, slightly. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. One thing which was happening in Europe in the 1930s, as everybody knows, is this kind of ideological polarization, right? Where, where Hitler comes to power in 33, and then Stalin authorizes popular fronts, which mm-hmm. means that the communists are supposed to ally with with left wing parties against the far right. Mm-hmm. And so, in, in in many countries, you see this kind of polarization for that reason, and also because of the economic depression, you have a general kind of radicalization. And Wilhelm experiences what happens to him in France as a left wing conspiracy. Uh-huh. He's not entirely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, all the newspapers that are attacking him are, are, are newspapers of the left or the far left. Um, the communists are especially keen to get him because he's an anti-communist, and he, gets, he draws attention to the problems of the first five-year plan, like mm-hmm. the famine, yeah. which, no, which few people in, in France are doing at the time. Right. And so they really go after him during the scandal. Right. And, and the scandal really frightens him and changes him. Mm-hmm. Um, his friends betray him, and then the public sphere seems to be out to get him. Mm-hmm. And so he moves from being someone who is gentle and naive and left-wing to being someone who is very frightened and, and right-wing. So he, he, in a way, goes from one end of the spectrum to the other. He goes to Austria, which he calls fascist at, that, mm-hmm. at this time. That's not that's a slightly controversial way of thinking about it. Austria at this time is a small nation state of German speakers, which is governed by a kind of clerical authoritarian regime. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's on the far right, uh, and, and Wilhelm finds it very comfortable after the experience of France. Mm-hmm. And um, his general thought at this time was, was, was pro-fascist, mm-hmm. um, like a lot of people. And he had a particular Ukrainian angle on this, which was that he thought that some kind of fascist cooperation was the only way that Ukraine could be saved from, mm-hmm. from the Soviets. Mm-hmm. Uh, he reacts to the rise of National Socialism um, by running through very quickly um, the national possibilities before him. He had generally thought of himself before as being simultaneously uh, Austrian and Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. Austrian means something very, very vague. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, of course, hadn't stopped him from trying to get French citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, now <laughs> he, he begins to go along he begins to go along with a kind of racist thinking. This is kind of in the worst moments of his paranoia mm-hmm. in the 1930s, where he thinks, okay, the Austrians don't really exist, so maybe I'm a German. Mm-hmm. And he kind of tries to reconcile his, his life with briefly with national socialist thinking about race. But of course it doesn't work, because Wilhelm's whole attitude about nationality has always been one that it's a kind of politics, it's a kind of affiliation. You choose it, you can change it, you can have two at once or three at once. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's part, it's part of your internal life. It's something over which you have some kind of control. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Nazi idea about nationality, of course, is that it's race, you know, it's in the blood. It's something you don't have control over. And so intellectually, that doesn't really work out. Practically, it doesn't work out either. Um, Wilhelm's childhood home is, is seized by the Germans when they invade Poland in 1939. Um, his older brother is taken by the Gestapo and tortured. Interestingly, the older brother is being tortured for not admitting that he's a German, uh-huh. because according to the German, the Nazi idea, the, the, the Habsburgs are all Germans. But, but Wilhelm's older brother very loyally um, stays true to the to his own Polish identity. Right. Um, and then other kind of you know nasty or personal things happen, like Hans Frank, the the general governor mm-hmm. of, of Poland, um, takes the, you know steals the Habsburg family silver. Silver, yeah, like right. Yeah, no, no. Um, meanwhile, Wilhelm still has a strategic thought that you know the Germans might be might be nasty, but they're going they're the only people who could build the Ukraine. Uh-huh. And this is the kind of desperate geopolitical thinking that you know Ukrainians and other stateless nations are vulnerable to. Yeah. So he was still waiting for a German invasion of the Soviet Union to see what would happen. Yeah. What happened was that the Germans didn't knock over, they didn't reach Moscow in the fall of 1941, as they expected. Uh-huh. Um, they didn't win the war in a blitzkrieg, which they expected. You know, we now know, and this is what Wilhelm thought they thought, and he was right, that they were going to win the war in a blitz, as they had in, in France. Yeah. So it would be over by Christmas, 1941. Uh-huh. Um, Wilhelm saw that that didn't happen, and he also saw that the Germans did almost nothing to support the idea of the Ukrainian state. In fact, uh-huh. people who tried to proclaim Ukrainian state were generally arrested and sent to camps and things yeah, like this. Yeah. And so by early 1942, no later, we, we know this, by early 1942, Wilhelm had turned against the Nazis and the Germans and was beginning to recruit in a very gentle and charming way Ukrainians in Vienna to spy on the Germans, um, to collect information about German troop movements and things like this and pass it on to, to the British. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And um, does he continue those activities uh, after the war then? He continues it all the way. As far as we can make out, I mean, unfortunately, this is like a really good example of how it's easier to do research now in Eastern Europe, you know, than in Western countries, yeah. because there was this moment of archival openness in the East, which is yeah. now passing, unfortunately, which, yeah. to which there was never any equivalent in the West. So, yeah. uh, in French and British military archives, I had, I had a really hard time. But as far as I can make out from the Soviet interrogation protocols um, and from what Wilhelm's companion said, what happens, the companion said, what happens is that in Vienna during the war, he continues to spy 42, 43, 44, 45 against the Germans for the British, uh-huh. um, uh, pro- probably working within the framework of something which the British called the Special Operations Executive, SOE. Uh-huh. At around the time of the end of the war, he faces a dilemma which Ukrainians um, and actually all East Europeans face. You know, well more than 100 million people saw this dilemma, and that is that if you, if you oppose the Germans, if you have opposed the Germans, what you were doing objectively is you were helping the Soviets, yeah. because the Soviets were the, were the great enemy of the Germans. But of course, for someone like Wilhelm, the Soviets were a source of enormous fear, yeah. and the last thing he wanted was Soviet rule of Eastern Europe. Right. And so the only thing that, the only way out, as Wilhelm saw it, was to try to transfer his own loyalty and the loyalty of Ukrainians to the Western allies, yeah. to the Americans, the British, the French. Mm-hmm. So what he did at the end of the war was he started to work for French military intelligence yeah. against the Soviets. Mm-hmm. Um, as the Western Allies began to be anxious about Soviet intentions in 45 and 46, they began to recruit people like Wilhelm. And Wilhelm you know, was, at the, was at the top of the network of other Ukrainians mm-hmm. who give them information because they knew language and things like this. So he was working for the French in occupied Vienna. Remember, it was, it was the Soviets who liberated Vienna, um, mm-hmm. and then Vienna was under full power control from, from the summer of 1945 onward. So Wilhelm was doing very risky. Mm-hmm. He was basically under the eyes of the Soviets, spying on the Soviets, controlling other spies who were working against the Soviets, yeah. mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a city where the Soviets exercised a great deal of authority. Mm-hmm. And this is what led to his end. Um, yeah. That's The Soviets eventually arrested him in Vienna and then shipped him back to Soviet Ukraine for interrogation. Yeah, let's pause just for a second to... Um discuss, if we can, uh, an episode which, again, I, I just think is completely, lo- it, it's what's well, very dim in my mind, um, and I think it's completely lost to most Americans' historical consciousnesses, and that is uh, the efforts by the Western powers to fund Ukrainians in a liberation effort of Soviet Ukraine. Was Wilhelm involved in that? And maybe you could just speak a little bit more generally about it. The only reason I mention this is because I knew some Ukrainians actually uh, who had had parents who were involved in these movements, and they were run out of Austria, if I recall correctly. Is that right? Yeah. Let me. Can I just take a step back and approach that in a kind of general way? Uh-huh. The, the, the Ukrainian question like, throughout the 20th century has kind of invited the attention of, of outsiders, outsiders who are interested in weakening the Russian Empire yeah. and then the Soviet Union. And so just to look at it from the point of view of the Ukrainians for a moment, um, and Wilhelm in a way is an instance of this. They have been in a very weak position, um, requiring aid from the outside in order to have some kind of hope. And so it's always a kind of compromise and sometimes even a kind of devil's bargain. And it's very risky. What happened at the, in the Second World War, at the end of the Second World War, was that the Allies were scrambling. The British and the Americans, I mean, the French to some extent too, they were scrambling. They didn't really know how to engage the Soviet Union at the level of intelligence. They were a bit surprised by how quickly the Soviets were able to establish control where they wanted to. And they found themselves confronted with an intelligence apparatus, um, or a series of intelligence apparatus, which were which were far superior to anything that they could bring to bear. Mm-hmm. And so they scrambled and they improvised and they did their best. And one of the things which the Americans did, and you're right that this is only in the last 10 years or so coming out in the literature, one of the things the Americans did when they recruited Ukrainians, especially people from Western Ukraine who had been um, Polish citizens, mm-hmm. who were actually from the old Habsburg territories mm-hmm. that this book is about, and um, and and they and they trained some of them and, and they and along with the British they they dropped some of them back into Soviet Ukraine. Yeah. This ended terribly. Yeah. Um, the Soviets were so much better at the sort of thing than we were at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Kim Philby was informing the Soviets yeah. about British operations. But yeah, a number of a, a number of Ukrainians were drawn into the very early Cold War in this way, and um, and 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 used by the Americans and the British really to, to no gain to the Ukrainian cause. Mm-hmm. And this didn't actually this this activity didn't stop until the early 50s, did it? 
I remember um, being told this, that, that basically, and I don't remember the names of these groups. UPA was one of them, and I, I can't remember the other one. But anyway, these were armed detachments that are actually dispatched and sent into Soviet Ukraine. And according to the person that was talking to me, this was still being done in the early 50s. Let, let me just link this back up to Wilhelm, yes, if, if I could. Um, one of the things that Wilhelm did before he was arrested is that he made one of the first contacts between important Ukrainian nationalists and Western intelligence agencies. Uh-huh. Um, Wilhelm had uh, had a friend, a, a music student called Roman Novosad, who yes. was arrested with Wilhelm and yeah. sent off to Siberia. Uh, and they were able, in a very complicated operation, which involved... Um, a ballerina, um, a music hall, Salzburg, and the American occupation zone in Bavaria, um, they were able to put a leading Ukrainian nationalist, a very important one, a guy called Nikola Levez, in touch with the French military intelligence. And I, I'm supposing that uh, that from there, his contacts expanded to the British and the Americans. Yeah. Levez ended up working for the Americans, settling in Pennsylvania, um, dying not, not all that long ago. Um, and what the, you're right, what the Americans did was essentially they dropped a few people in with intelligence missions who were generally you know, caught once they hit the ground yeah. and tortured. Um, they also seem to have supported in some logistical way uh, the military resistance, the UPA that you mentioned. Yeah. The details of that, that were very, very sketchy, uh-huh. and their business historiography on that is still so yeah. young and immature that I, I wouldn't want to say anything certain about it. Is anybody working on that now? You know, uh, it's a terrific topic, I guess. There's, there, yeah, Jeffrey Birds at Northeastern oh, really? is, is working yeah. on that. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting. Although I do, I do, I did also hear from these Ukrainian friends that I had that it wasn't actually a safe topic to work on. I mean, in the literally physical sense, it was you, you could that there were people around who would do you harm if you asked too many questions about these things. Even today, that it was just a, a very sensitive topic. So I, I hope, I hope um. I hope Jeff is uh, very careful in what he does. So let's conclude Wilhelm's life. How did he die? Well, he, he died in this sort of fascinatingly horrible and, and, and in a way ironic way. He he had always wanted to go to Kiev. Um, Kiev was the ancient, as he saw things, you know, the ancient seat of uh, what he hoped would be Ukrainian kingdom. It had been the capital of these ancient states, which he saw as Ukrainian states. And he had wanted to come to Kiev. In 1918, he wanted to come to Kiev and be king of Ukraine. That was his great moment during the end of the First World War when he was a legend in Ukraine. Uh-huh. He was very popular. And he, he plotted, he, and he thought, and he proposed about coming, proposed to come to Kiev and, and see if he would be acclaimed king. Uh-huh. And that's what he wanted in the early 20s as well, when he was, his name was still known and he was still very popular. He uh-huh. thought that if he could just get the Red Army out, he would be proclaimed king. Mm-hmm. Um, but he never actually gets to Kiev until 1947. Mm-hmm. The Soviets arrest him on the platform at the Sudbanhof, the train station in Vienna. They, they crowd him into a, uh, into a military vehicle, and then they fly him to, to Kiev. So he arrives in Kiev, but he arrives in Kiev um, wearing a blindfold instead of a crown. Mm-hmm. And, and they take him to basically um, a dungeon and interrogate him there for the better part of a year. Mm-hmm. He had tuberculosis, which he contracted during the First World War. Mm-hmm. This was not treated during his interrogation. Mm-hmm. I think his interrogations, as Soviet interrogations went, were not among the harshest. But nevertheless, he was a man who was already in his early 50s in poor health. He had mm-hmm. tuberculosis and he had a heart ailment, which was also not being treated. So the way he dies is that he's interrogated for a couple, for the better part of a year. Um, he actually holds up pretty well under interrogation. He's sentenced to 25 years in, um, in a prison camp. Um, I imagine he got that sentence instead of death because the Soviets were still hoping to, to turn him and to use him like they yeah. used lots of other Ukrainian nationals in the past mm-hmm. against Ukrainian partisans. These very people you mentioned before yeah. were still fighting at this time. This is yeah. only 1948. Yeah. So he sent him to 25 years, but six days after the sentencing, he dies of tuberculosis, yeah. um, and he's buried nameless in a mass grave, in, mass grave in Kiev. Is he memorialized anywhere? Is there a grave or a statue or anything anywhere? I don't think anyone knows where he was buried. Uh-huh. Um, there's no statue that I know of. The only the only commemoration or the only memorialization that I that I'm aware of, there might be others at this point, is a little square in a southern district of the town of Lviv, uh-huh. which in Wilhelm's time was Lemberg, um, yeah. in western Ukraine, yeah. in Galicia. There's a pleasant little square which is called. Um, Square. Oh, really? Is that right? Huh, how do you like that? 
So what is the legacy of um, the Red Prince today? What What is his meaning for us? I know that's a very broad question, but let me ask it anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I think one, one way to think about the Red Prince is to think about what monarchy actually was for us, that in, in, in all of these Western societies, you know, from Russia to the United States, monarchy, I think, slowly led away rather than being done away with at some certain point. You know, I think we're still struggling with how to deal with a president who is who functions as a kind of both a monarch and a prime minister uh-huh. at the same time. Yeah. Um, European societies like Germany are have this, this ceremonial function located in a president. You can't get away with the, you can't do away with the ceremonial function. You can't have a pure republic mm-hmm. in the way that the French revolutionaries imagined. Mm-hmm. And 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 so monarchism as a as a subject of history, I think, is much more legitimate in the 20th century than we realize. Yeah. In a very broad way, Wilhelm represents that. Mm-hmm. Another thing Wilhelm represents is the Habsburgs and their legacy. I mean, he's an extreme example of the things the Habsburgs stood for. Um, like homosexuality and decadence and mm-hmm. multiple nationality and toleration. He's mm-hmm. an extreme example, but nevertheless, there is something about that family and its cynical, practical, but nevertheless open-minded attitude about worldly affairs and politics, mm-hmm. which might become or is becoming more relevant in Europe today, mm-hmm. because the idea that the history ended with the nation-state, and then mm-hmm. once you had national republics, everything else would sort itself out, mm-hmm. that's clearly proven itself wrong, mm-hmm. as you said, with, yeah. the first, with the Second World War, but also with the post-war. You know, the post-war success of the, European, of the Europeans has been the European Union, mm-hmm. which is the reestablishment of something like a level of politics above the nation, mm-hmm. right? And it's mm-hmm. not exactly like a monarchy or a Habsburg yeah. monarchy, obviously, but it has a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. The bureaucracy, the multinationality, the rule of law, mm-hmm. and also the idea that you could have a loyalty besides your national loyalty. Yeah. And the things that the European Union has done, like reestablishing a common currency, like reestablishing a common border, doing away with, with passports for internal travel, mm-hmm. trying to manage a small-scale globalization, those are all very Habsburg projects. And so in that way, one can see um, a kind of easy continuity, if you like, between that period at the end of the 19th century and the period of the, of, of, of the early 21st century. Yeah, I see just what you mean. I, I um, lived in Ireland for a time and taught at a university there. And uh, many of my students – now, Ireland is a very nationalistic place. I, Irish people love Ireland. Um, their greatest aspiration was to go work for the EU in Brussels. That was, yeah. <laughs> it was like that was that was really where you wanted to end up. We're going to the EU and Brussels because that really was the imperial capital of Europe then. You know that's where the big careers were and that's where the important people were. So I was was kind of amazed by that when I was in Ireland. But yeah, let me ask you this. Fine, let me ask you one more question before I ask the uh, final question, and that is this: Where are the Habsburgs today? I don't hear about them very much. Well, they're they're all over the place. I, I imagine mean, I there are a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't wish to speak for them. I mean, there there are a lot of branches of the family. Um, they're scattered about Europe and the United States. Um, some of them were were generous enough to to speak with me or mm-hmm. um, or communicate with me over the course of writing this book. Mm-hmm. But um, so, for example, the book features. Um, a, a branch of the Habsburg family, which in Poland are now known as the Polish Habsburgs, mm-hmm. because all of them, except for Wilhelm, who is of course Ukrainian, were loyal to Poland and remained in Poland as long as they could. Mm-hmm. They had to scatter at the time of the Second World War or the imposition of communism, which yeah. is a story I also try, try to tell in the book. Mm-hmm. And then some of them came back temporarily or permanently. Mm-hmm. One of Wilhelm's nieces, Maria Christina Habsburg, has now returned to the town of Zivyets in Poland, yeah. where the action of the book or a lot of the action of the yeah. book takes place where the family had its palace. Mm-hmm. And she now lives in that palace oh, really? that right? again. So she's there. And then um, the um, the the... Uh, the head of the family, Alfred von Habsburg, who was at the head of the Restorationist movement in the 1930s, which Wilhelm embarrassed and discredited with yeah. his antics in Paris, mm-hmm. also was still with us. He's still alive. He had a long career as a pro-European politician mm-hmm. um, and is uh, it, it spoke out most recently in favor of the enlargement of the European Union to the east and uh-huh. then in favor of the Orange Revolution uh-huh. in Ukraine. Uh-huh. Um, I listened carefully, but I didn't notice him referring <laughs> to Wilhelm at that time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but he is still with us, and his sons, um, including um, Georg von Habsburg, who was kind enough to communicate with me, oh, are right. still carrying on Habsburg politics, Georg, uh-huh. for example, in Budapest. Uh-huh. So the family's there. A- any uh, plans for restoration of anything? 
they 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 continue to deny. <laughs> yes, mum about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but who can tell? I mean, as you point out, um, you know, it, it, this could you know we could look back on this in a. 200 years as the momentary pause in Habsburg rule and what was an otherwise, you know, eight or 900 year continuity. It's it's possible. I mean, you you never really know what's going to happen. Well, Tim, thank you very much for spending a lot of time with us today. We really, really appreciate it. And I'd like to ask you our traditional question, and that is, um, our traditional closing question, that is, what what are you working on now? What's next for you? I would like to now do a, a big synthetic book. Uh-huh. Um, this book was very heavily archival. That was part of the joy of it. Mm-hmm. We tried to figure out Wilhelm's life by going all across Europe and looking in these regional archives. That was great fun. Mm-hmm. I'm now trying to do something synthetic, mm-hmm. which is to try to bring together the German, the Polish, uh, the Russian scholarship about the middle of the 20th century mm-hmm. and to try to present Eastern Europe from 1933 to 1953 as, a, as one long, if you like, humanitarian disaster, mm-hmm. and to, to write a history of all of the political atrocities committed mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe, by which I mean my Eastern Europe, Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, um, all of those disasters from the famine in Soviet Ukraine um, through the Second World War to Stalin's death, mm-hmm. one after the other. So the book is called Bloodlands, mm-hmm. and its emphasis is on the experience of the peoples of Soviet terror, but also German Holocaust, mm-hmm. um, Soviet famine, but also German famine, mm-hmm. one after the other as experiences which, which formed a generation, or two of them, and partly to argue that German and Soviet policies not only interacted, but also accumulated in a certain way. And it's this accumulation and this mutual interaction and the way that this brought not only death, but certain kinds of horrible survival and experience mm-hmm. to this whole region that, that made this region, that made Eastern Europe what it is today. Mm-hmm. The idea is also just to bring to, to bring to a larger readership, I hope, um, what what my colleagues have, my colleagues have been doing wonderfully well in getting and putting together the Holocaust and and, and Soviet terror in the last fifteen years, mm-hmm. um, bringing those historiographies together, so that in a way the center of gravity of European history can move to the east a bit. Mm-hmm. It's not the Holocaust has not been properly located in Eastern Europe. Yeah. People have not properly understood the way that Soviet policies of terror interacted with the Holocaust and German policies. And also, people just don't realize the scope of the horror of it all, yeah. just how bad things were, how many yeah. millions and millions of people yeah. died. Yeah. So I'm trying to do a synthetic work of that kind. Oh, that sounds terrific. You, uh, you have to promise to come on the show when you're done. I'd be glad to watch Okay, I would really appreciate that very much. Well, Tim, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Uh, the book is The Red Prince uh, by Tim Snyder. And, uh, Tim, like I say, thanks very much for being on the show. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Michael. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Tim Snyder, the author of The Red Prince, The Secret Lives of a Habsburg Archduke. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope that you have a good week, and I'll talk to you next week.